Well, you can basically split this section up, uh, this section of scripture up into two passages here, or this passage up into two sections, I should say. Uh, You have verses 52 through 56, and then you have verses 57 through 62, and in each one of those sections, you get a different requirement for discipleship, a different requirement for following Jesus and being on the road with Jesus. So let's start with the first requirement. Uh, Let's set the stage for what we see here. We learn in verse 52 that he sends messengers ahead of him and they enter a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements. If you're going to Jerusalem from Capernaum, which is what they're doing, the the most direct route is to go through uh, Samaria, and that's not something that the Jewish people really relished. The Jews and the Samaritans did not have good relations. There was a shared hatred for one another that dated back hundreds of years. During the Assyrian captivity, uh, which took place uh, about 700 years before Christ, uh, the Samaritans intermarried with the Assyrian oppressors. And because they intermarried in that way, the Jewish people considered them to be, and I I don't uh, mean to be crass this morning, but they legitimately considered them to be racial half-breeds. That's how they looked at them. Okay, I know that's offensive language, but that's, that's exactly how they looked at them. They looked at them as religious apostates, meaning they had departed from true Jewish religion. The Samaritans looked at the Jewish people and they said, no, 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 you guys are the apostates. You are full-blooded Jews, but you're wholehearted apostates. And the Samaritans set up a rival culture to the Jewish culture. They had their own temple at Mount Gerizim. They had their own version of the first five books of the Old Testament. They had their own liturgy for worship that rivaled Jewish liturgy. So the Jewish people responded to that by adding liturgy into their worship where they would actually pronounce curses upon the Samaritans in synagogue worship. They would actually ask God to not allow the Samaritans to inherit eternal life in the worship services. So that is how deep the hatred ran. It was ugly stuff. So Jesus sends messengers into Samaria to let the town know they are coming. Jesus has a large band of followers with him at this point. So if they come in, they're going to slam the marketplaces and the inns. And and so they send somebody ahead to say, hey, a big party's coming. It's it's what you do if you're like going to eat at Texas Roadhouse after church, right? You got like eight people. You send a scout to let them know. Like we got a big crew coming. We need a couple of tables together. So that's what they did. They send them ahead. But you see in verse 53, they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. Now that point's really important. They didn't reject the party that was coming because they hated Jesus. The Samaritans weren't like, oh, it's that Jesus guy? Well, no, he can't come here. They didn't care about that. What they cared about was there were Jewish people on their way to Jerusalem that wanted to stop in their town. They were going to go worship in the rival temple, and they were not going to have those people in their town. So this was about that hatred. This was about that history. It was not about Jesus. But James and John are incensed over this. In Mark 3, Jesus nicknames James and John the sons of thunder, and you see why here. They say, listen, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? Fire to just eat up the whole whole village. Now, this suggestion doesn't come from nowhere. They're probably thinking of uh, something that happened in 2 Kings with Elijah. There's this evil king named Ahaziah, 
And he sent soldiers to capture Elijah on three different occasions. On two of those occasions, Elijah called down fire from heaven and it consumed the men who came for him. So here's what it says. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 with his 50. And he went up to him and behold, he was sitting on top of the hill. And he said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. Elijah replied to the captain of the 50, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. So he again sent uh, to him another captain of 50 with his 50. And he said to him, O man of God, thus says the king, come down quickly. Elijah replied to them, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. So he again sent a captain of the third 50 with his 50. I love what the third captain does. He's like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not falling for this. So he shows up and says, he came and bowed down on his knees before Elijah and begged him and said to him, O man of God, please let my life and the lives of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the first two captains of 50 with their 50s, but now let my life be precious in your sight. So James and John are probably thinking of this. They're probably thinking, man, we, we've seen fire uh, consume, you know, the ungodly who are challenging those who are on God's mission. And so this is, this is what we'll do here. We'll, we're, we're the men of God. These Samaritans, uh, they're in the wrong, so we'll just call down fire from heaven and we'll show them. And I bet the next village will beg us to come in, just like that last captain got down on his knees and begged. But Jesus rebukes them in verse 55. He tells them they don't know what spirit they are of. And what he means by that is they don't understand the level of vengeance, the level of bitterness, the level of revenge that they have in their hearts. They feel like they are passionate and zealous for a godly reason. And he's saying, no, you, you are of a spirit you don't understand. You are of a vengeful spirit. There is a selfish vengeance underneath this request. So he rebukes it. And he tells them he did not come to destroy the lives of men, he came to save them. Reminiscent of what he tells Nicodemus in John 3, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. A time is coming, and we're going to talk about this next week, when Jesus will return and all who oppose him, everyone who rejects him will be destroyed. But that is in his second advent. That is in his second coming. It's not what his first coming was about. In his first coming, he came to seek and to save that which is lost. And he came to show mercy and not the fire of judgment. Think about everything he's been teaching them up to this point. Remember back in Luke 6, the, the sermon on the plain? Was he teaching about fire from heaven? No. He said, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you. Whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. That's a far cry from fire being called down from heaven to consume a village. He taught them, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Even as he sent the twelve out at the beginning of this chapter, 
He told them that if they get to a place and they're rejected at that place, they are to shake the dust off of their feet, which was a warning to those who were rejecting them that, um, that you are rejecting the prophet of God, you're rejecting the kingdom of God, and that you're in danger, right? It was a warning, but again, it wasn't calling down fire from heaven. So what this tells us is that if we're going to follow Christ and we're going to walk the road with him, that we're not vengeful people. We're not hateful people. Our discipleship must be marked by mercy. It's the first requirement for following Jesus this morning we see in this text. Our discipleship must be marked by mercy. We're going to talk about commitment in a moment. And I think that you could think, you know, that's going to be the hardest part of the sermon. This mercy, this is like the the cool side of the pillow here, but when we get to to commitment, that's probably going to be a, a, a lot harder. That's going to be a lot tougher. But I think the mercy that Jesus is calling for here is a tall glass to drink from. When you devote yourself to mercy, what you're saying is on top of your own needs, on top of your own stress, on top of your own distress, on top of your own anxieties, on top of your own worries, that you are willing to take on the needs and the distress of other people. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a book called The Cost of Discipleship, and for my money, it's the best book on discipleship that's ever been written outside of the Bible itself. There's a quote from Bonhoeffer in that book, talking about the mercy of Christians. He says, They have an irresistible love for the downtrodden, the sick, the wretched, the wronged, the outcasts, and all who are tortured with anxiety. They go out and seek all who are enmeshed in the toils of sin and guilt. No distress is too great, no sin too appalling for their pity. If any man falls into disgrace, the merciful will sacrifice their own honor to shield him and take his shame upon themselves. In order that they may be merciful, they cast away the most priceless treasure of human life, their personal dignity and honor. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? His dignity and honor was laid down to become a servant, even to the point of death on a cross. That's what the humiliation of Christ at Calvary so that we could be saved is all about. He modeled that as he washed the disciples' feet in the upper room. And now, if we're going to walk with him on the road of discipleship, we are supposed to be like our master and show the same type of mercy. Do you know what I believe the biggest hurdle to Christians showing mercy is in 2021 America? I don't think it's... um, a lack of desire or intention. I don't think it's a lack of ability or a lack of money. I think it's time. Time is the biggest hurdle to Christians being merciful. Our smartphones and our Netflix shows and our routines and our commitments have made us too busy to stop and to take on the distress of the people that are around us. We've let our busyness cause our discipleship to malfunction in the area of mercy. And that, that hurts, right? It hurts to accept that. It hurts to realize that if you need to accept it. And that's why I don't believe for one second this is the softer side of the sermon. We're going to talk about commitment in a moment, but mercy is just as tough. To be merciful as Christ is merciful, you have to be surrendered to Jesus. You have to learn mercy from Him. You have to learn mercy from those who are more mature in the faith than you. Uh, It takes giving up something so you can give to others. Mercy is sacrificial by its nature. 
And it must be intentional. It's not something that happens by accident. You don't fall into being merciful in your day. You have to go out of your way to be merciful. And and mercy is not an attitude. You could walk around and feel like you have the attitude of mercy. That probably just means you pity people at appropriate times. Mercy is attitude and action. Jesus doesn't just feel that they should not call down fire from heaven on this town. He rebukes them and says, no, let's move along to the next town. Did the town that rejected him deserve the fire from heaven? Absolutely. So does our town. But he was actively merciful to them. One day Jesus is going to return and he is going to show his vengeance. Vengeance will be the Lord's. But until that day... We leave the vengeance to him, and we execute mercy. Second section of the passage. Our discipleship must be marked by commitment. There's three different aspects to commitment here. The first comes in verses 57 and 58. Luke says they're going along the road, so here he does remind us that they're traveling. And somebody says to him, hey, I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus. You see that in verse 57? I'll follow you wherever you go. So Jesus responds with one of his most famous lines. He says, the foxes have holes, right? The foxes have dens. The birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, in reality, Jesus did have a place to lay his head a lot of times. He stayed with Peter. He stayed with Martha and Mary and and, and Lazarus. So what, what does he mean here? He isn't saying... Literally, that you must be a lifelong wayfarer out traveling the road in order to be his disciple, never knowing where you're going to sleep. He's telling them that a commitment to discipleship is a commitment to discomfort. You might literally be homeless at times if you are his disciple, but that's not all it means. It means that for the sake of Christ, you will willingly subject yourself to unease, you will subject yourself to rejection. You will subject yourself to sacrifice. A disciple of Christ is going to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, their whole value system changes. Their priorities are rearranged. And it will become very clear to them that this world is not their home. That there's nowhere they're truly going to be comfortable in this world because this world is not their home. That's what a disciple realizes. It's just like if you go on vacation, like you get there and you're like, this is great, I never want to leave, love this place. But even if you go to Hawaii, even if you go to like some tropical island, right, at some point, as you get toward the end, you're like, yeah, I'm ready to pack it up and go home. I'm ready for home. You desire home. Nothing's like home. You can't wait to get away from home when the vacation starts. But by the end of it, you just want to be back home. And that's the way we are as believers. We don't have an address here. We have no lasting city here. And so we don't mind being uncomfortable here because we know that that's just the name of the game. It's not our home. There's a certain level of discomfort we are signing up for as citizens of the kingdom. The second aspect of commitment comes here in verses 59 and 60. Jesus invites another man there to follow him. And the man responds and says, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. This seems like a really reasonable request at face value. 
Let me go back and have a funeral, and then I'll come back to you. But Jesus responds and says, allow the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Now, is Jesus being unreasonable here? Is Jesus even being unbiblical here? After all, the Ten Commandments call on people to honor their parents, right? Honor your father and mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. That honoring is is unto death. In Matthew 15, the Pharisees neglect their parents. Jesus condemns them for it. He says, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks of evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have uh, that would help you has been given to God, he is not to honor his father or his mother, and by this you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. The Pharisees tried to do this sort of moral magic trick where uh, when it came time to give to the poor um, or to give to, to mom and dad, oh, I don't have anything left, I gave it all to God. And Jesus says, by doing this, you've actually allowed man-made tradition and man-made morality to have more validity than the Word of God. And he condemns them for it. So why does the Old Testament say, honor your father and mother, and then Jesus in the New Testament is condemning the Pharisees for not honoring theirs, but then he tells this guy not to go bury his father? Well, for starters, when we read this, typically we think this guy's dad has just died and that he just needs to go have a funeral, don't we? But there's actually no evidence in this text that his dad has passed away. If his dad was dying or had just died, the man wouldn't be on the road with Jesus, right? He'd be with his dad. What's more likely is his father is aging. And he's saying, I'll follow you, but first, my dad's got to get a little bit older. He's going to pass away. And then I will collect my inheritance. And then I'll track you down, Jesus, and then I will be your disciple. You might still think that's reasonable, right? Just let me retire first. But what the man is missing here is the urgency of the mission that Jesus is on. Remember, Jesus has turned his face toward Jerusalem. The kingdom of God is at hand. The Messiah is on the earth. He's on his way to die for the sins of the world, on his way to resurrect, to defeat sin and death, on his way to complete the task given to him by the Father. His life is filled with an enormous urgency. So there's no time to wait for this man's father to die. If we're going to be on the road of discipleship with Jesus, our commitment to discipleship is a commitment to urgency. Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. The implication there is, if you're alive to God, you take on the task of proclaiming life, proclaiming the kingdom of God, proclaiming the gospel of God. Even in this man's uh, father's case, his dad's greatest need is not for his son to come and care for him in his old age and then to put him into the grave. His dad's greatest need is to know the king of the kingdom. So let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. We who are spiritually alive are more concerned with preaching life so that people would repent and they would be saved. Over 150,000 people die every day on the earth. 
50 million people a year. It's crazy, right? I don't mean to be grim. It's just the reality of the situation. Every one of them will stand before God and they will answer for their sins. We work with these people. We coach Little League with these people. We pass them in the Walmart parking lot. We live next to them. So what we do in terms of proclaiming the gospel as disciples of Christ is the most urgent matter that you and I have in our hands. It's the most urgent work that we could possibly do. And so in light of that, if you are a committed disciple, who are you praying for to come to know Jesus? Who are you lifting up so that they would come to know the Lord? Who are you sharing with? Who are you working on? Who are you serving so you could earn the right to share with them? The, the urgency requires prioritized activity. That's the message that Jesus is sending this man. Finally, you get the third man on the road. Third aspect of our commitment as disciples. The man says, he will follow Jesus, but he wants to say goodbye to the people who are at home first. And Jesus says, nobody after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is a minor request, and it's a minor request with biblical roots. So in 1 Kings, Elijah calls Elisha to follow him, and look at what happens. It says, he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, please let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, or what have I done to you? So he returned from following him and took the pair of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen, and he gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. Saying goodbye is a proper obligation. It's not an improper obligation. It's a proper obligation. You see that with Elisha. But what Jesus is telling this man is that even the most proper obligations are secondary when it comes to following Christ. And so he uses this farming illustration with them. It's probably, it's, it's, it's not um, familiar to me because I didn't grow up on a farm. Some of you grew up on farms, but a lot of us are super suburban people, right? But everybody listening to Jesus would have known exactly what this meant. Everybody in Jesus' culture knew that you couldn't plow a straight line without looking backwards. Or let me take that back. You couldn't plow a straight line and look backwards. Okay? Just like you can't drive down the street looking this way. If you're going to plow a straight line, you have to look forward. So if you're going to be single-minded in following Jesus, if you're going to plow a straight line for Jesus in your commitment, you don't look back even for the most understandable reasons. Our, our commitment to discipleship must look forward. So as you're on the, the road of discipleship with Christ, don't keep looking in the rearview mirror at things that have already happened. Looking back either to supposed glory years or looking back to years that haunt you and events and things that haunt you. But look forward. Drive toward the goal. Paul tells us what the goal of discipleship is in Philippians 3. He says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
The goal of your discipleship is Jesus himself. That is the great prize at the end of the road of discipleship. It's Jesus. It was Paul's prize and he is our prize. And we move forward toward our prize. What is your following Jesus known for? What is your Christian life known for? I I think some Christians are known for the wrong things. We might be known for our legalism. We might be known for our willingness to blur the lines of sin and holiness and play with evil things. We might be known for our preferences. We might be known for our politics. We might be known for just not being consistent, being up and down. It shouldn't be this way. We should be known for mercy and commitment. People should be able to look at our lives and see the mercy and commitment in our lives and know that we are on the road with Jesus. I try not to overuse sports illustrations because I'm a sports fan. I could just go crazy with them. But I'm going to use one this morning. So I'm a Washington Nationals fan. And two years ago, they won the World Series. There was this guy on the team named Anthony Rendon. He doesn't play for him anymore because the Los Angeles Angels gave him a lot of money to go play there. And I'm not bitter about it. I really am not. He gave us a championship. So, you know, God bless you, sir. And uh, I still root for him out there. But Rendon was a leader in the clubhouse. He was quiet. He was reserved. But he had steel. He didn't miss games. He played hurt. And he just carried himself as a leader. He did all the little things right. It's the sort of guy you want on your team. That's why the Angels paid so much money for him. So then he left, and uh, there's a leadership void on the team, right? So I'm watching a Nationals game a few weeks ago, and the, the color commentator's talking about this guy, Trey Turner, young shortstop, played next to Anthony Rendon for five years. And he said, you know, Trey, Trey just has this quiet steel. He's just this leader in the clubhouse. He doesn't say wrong things to the press. He plays hurt. He shows up every day. The other guys look to him as their model. And then he turned to the other commentator. He says, who's that remind you of? He said, it reminds me of number six. It reminds me of Anthony Rendon. And he said, exactly. You can tell that Trey Turner has stood there for five years next to this guy and played with him and learned from him. people look at your life, can they tell that you've been standing next to Jesus? That you've been on the road with him? Can they see that in your mercy? Can they see that in your commitment? If you want the answer to be yes, and you have to hear Jesus' requirements for discipleship and surrender yourself to them. Your discipleship with Jesus, your following with Jesus, cannot look the way you want it to look. It cannot be shaped and formed and fashioned to your desires, to your liking, to your conveniences. You have to look to what he says in the word and say, Lord, I do what you want me to do. And he says, be, merci- be, be merciful. And that the merciful will be shown mercy. And he calls us to a commitment where we are single-minded in our pursuit, where we understand the urgency, and where we follow him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. (laughs) Father, I pray that people will 
look at our church and know that we're on the road with Jesus. And this morning, I wonder what the next step is for some folks in this room when it comes to their discipleship. I pray they would ask themselves that right now. Maybe they don't share the gospel. They're afraid of it. It scares them, makes them feel uncomfortable, but it's time now. It's time to step out from the, the grips of fear and to tell the people around them about the love they have for Christ and the salvation that's found in Christ. Maybe it's giving. For some folks, giving money to the, the local church and, and buying in financially on the mission of the church is one of the last things they do in discipleship. And maybe it's time to take that step, to sacrificially give, to be a part of what you're doing. Maybe it's upping their prayer life and spending more time with you on their knees. Maybe it is finally committing to read their Bible every day and to stop being hit and miss with it. Maybe it's to stop complaining. Whatever it is, Lord, don't let us put fences up and try to keep things from you. May we be wholehearted in our commitment, urgently driving ourselves forward to finish the task that you have given us, to lay hold of the prize, and along the way, not being so busy that we do not stop and pick up the downtrodden and the sick and the hurting, that we are by their side, caring for them and loving them. I've seen some insane acts of mercy this week in this church. I've seen people rush to be by others in some of their greatest needs, just this week. And I thank you for that, and I pray for more of it. I pray for more mercy in our church. Because the more mercy we have, the more we're like you. The more commitment we have, the more we're like you. Committed, Jesus, to your Father's will, to die on the cross for sinners every step of the way. And you finish the task perfectly. Help us to finish ours with your power. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.